Hey, it's Kelly. And at the end of every week, I like to share something true and useful, something I stumbled over that gave me a burst of optimism, something you can share with friends like an audio greeting card, something to help us all keep our eyes on what's working and what could be. So I'll be right back with this week's For the Good of the Order. This is Kelly Corgan Wonders. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week's For the Good of the Order is, as they all are, honestly, as much for me as it is for you, because, you know, you learn what you teach. This is a piece of writing I did about acceptance, and in particular about accepting things that don't resolve. I'm a junkie for story. I read, write, and live by them. Every couple of years, I write some down and go city to city doing readings, And over all these years, trafficking in stories, I've noticed a problem. The standard pieces of good story, judging by what we teach and what we reward most handsomely, get in the way of reaching what I consider to be the Mount Everest of human emotions, which is to say the very hardest place to get to and the very hardest place to stay, acceptance. By acceptance, I simply mean when we acknowledge the nature of the beast and the beast's nature. Another way to get a clear working definition is to look at a few of accept's antonyms. Deny, reject, spurn, negate. A third way is via someone like Temple Grandin, the gifted autistic who recognized early on, along with her teachers, parents, and every kid she ever met, that she was different. Rather than deny or reject this, she said, this is how my mind works. This is what it can do. And as you probably know, her insights and hypersensitivities revolutionized how we treat cattle. To ground myself, I posted this question on Facebook. What have you had to accept and what happened after you accepted it? In 10 minutes, I got a master's in higher order processing. My friends have learned to live with multiple sclerosis, brain damage, stage four ovarian cancer, four types of addiction, losing a father to murder, a mother to suicide, everything to a fire, a son with Rett syndrome, a daughter with diabetes, a son who wants to become a daughter, and all manner of assholes, boss, stepfather, ex. Even if we dodge those bullets, here's a short list of things we are all invited to accept over a lifetime. Our childhoods, including the flaws of our mothers and fathers, the mistakes of our siblings, the cruelties of the neighborhood kid, our children, their mysterious insecurities, their tattoos and scars, their squandered potential, our spouses and the many things they do differently from us, ourselves. The deadly sins, all seven of them, the weather, inconvenient or ruthless, and the irreversible trajectory of all human bodies. So clearly, Acceptance, arduous though it is, is going to be required of us. Thankfully, acceptance gives back. In every single response, people gushed that acceptance set loose an internal freedom like they'd never known, and that freedom made possible a qualitatively different kind of happiness. I got going on this acceptance thing years ago when I started work on a memoir called Glitter and Glue, which I thought was about being a nanny, but turned out to be about my mother, who liked to say, your father's the glitter, but I'm the glue. 
My mother and I have virtually nothing in common. I am a dance on the table till midnight extrovert, an effusive, affectionate, self-doubting woman who likes nothing better than a long hug and a good cry. My mother is, well, I mean, do you watch Downton Abbey? Because my mother was Maggie Smith. She is an old school, opinionated woman who likes nothing better than what she calls a party for one which is when you pour a nice glass of Chardonnay over ice, take off your bra, and settle in with your library book somewhere no one can find you. Now, I have a lot of stories about my mom, like she's a chronic and proud regifter, but strangely, in the process of fully thinking her through, I finally stopped trying to change her, to make her more liberal and outgoing, or even just to get her to switch from Folger's crystals to brewed coffee. I understood for the first time that her way of being in the world is the right way for her. And sometimes accepting her spills over and affects my ability to embrace the reality of my children and even occasionally my husband, though not the way he packs the dishwasher because in that case he does it wrong. But like Mount Everest, acceptance is a hard place to stay. I keep falling back into the fight for people and things to conform to how they should and should not be. And that expectation is established by the conscious or subconscious or unconscious pull to narrative. It's glorious arcs and reassuring internal logic that, like it or not, life refuses to replicate. So we learn in elementary school and middle school and high school to look for the five-part dramatic structure holding everything up. Exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and then best of all, denouement, a French word that means untie. My daughter's teacher defined it as catharsis, following a return to normalcy. How fabulous does that sound? So then we graduate into the world and consume and produce all kinds of content, literary, cinematic, lyrical, And the world says, you want a winning story? Give us a character to root for, a journey packed with obstacles and a resolution. This goes back, of course, to Homer and Shakespeare, where certain appetites were created or reflected. The heroes we love to love are the reluctant nominees like Odysseus, and the villains we love to hate are the unseemly power grabbers like Lady Macbeth, which is fine for fiction but not when we start wanting or expecting regular people to behave like archetypal characters. In politics, the reluctant hero thing goes, if you all really want me to run, I will. No one ever says, I've wanted to be president since kindergarten. In the world of writing, the myth goes, I didn't hunt down an agent or beg an editor to take a look. I was discovered. And for the record, I hunted down an agent and begged an editor to take a look. We lean toward stories of destiny. An organic rise confers authenticity, and that is established or reinforced or some unholy cycle of the two by story. Nobody can resist the pull to narrative, and that makes for a whole lot of anger and intolerance. I mean, just watch the NFL. Like, Many games turn on these few random moments, but in the post-game, the sportscasters and coaches are prone to give the game structure, a bit of rising action, a climactic moment that led inevitably to the resolution. 
This isn't much different than leaders of startups who continually edit their narrative until it seems like one predestined step after another. It's all very understandable, but these sorts of legendary rises can be fatally discouraging to fledgling inventors and entrepreneurs who were planning to get to the Holy Land by surface streets rather than rocket ships. Speaking of fatally discouraging, every high school kid I know has bought into this powerful myth. Hero works hard. Hero goes to Yale. Hero has great life. Which leaves the community college kids and the kids who worked very hard but got rejected anyway agonizing over the unthinkable fate that awaits them. And God help the heroes who went to Yale and are not having a great life. Most dangerously, spontaneous narrative structuring happens between friends. Journalists talk about the tension between truth-telling and something they refer to broadly as civic uplift, which is shaping the story to give the public what the public needs, particularly in times of crisis. I think we might all be participating in a little civic uplifting here and there. This is hyper apparent now as we've all become micromedia outlets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, myself included, presenting thin sliced versions of our lives, mastering the art of the interpersonal headline. Maybe this is why teen depression and anxiety are at record levels because their lives are publicly and quantitatively less populated or eventful than at Jenny Gogo's and her 1800 Instagram friends who follow her everywhere. Where long-form, nuanced interaction is concerned, we're so out of practice, we almost don't know how to do it. I was recently in a room of adults, and behind us, a kid was making a collage. As some of us awkwardly struggled to get a conversation going with her, her basketball-playing brother came home, and everyone spun around and said, did you win? What was the score? The team lost. The refs were blind, apparently. And voila, hero meets villain. Here was a plot we all knew how to discuss. All the while, the arty kid noodled on the floor behind us with her amorphous project no one knew how to talk about. Speaking of things people don't know how to talk about, I had cancer in my 30s. It was kind of stunning how many conversations that year included, was it in your family, you're so brave, and what a wake-up call. I appreciate that it's unbearable for a bad thing to have just happened unbidden. I feel the same way all the time. But the truth is, after every one of those exchanges, I felt heavy-hearted. I could not give them civic uplift. I did not have a genetic predisposition to cancer, which would have been an ideal opening chapter of the story. There's not a heroic thing about me, and though it would have been a nice ending to claim that cancer reprioritized my life, I didn't need a wake-up call. I knew how good I had it. We know why we do this, besides our oldest time caveman craving for order and reason. One, we love consistency. We want to feel integrated across the stages and compartments of our lives. Call it the interview effect or the first date effect. And then look at the pain caused by perceived inconsistencies. Gay Christians, libertarian artists, philanthropic dopers. Two, reality bites or is boring or takes too long to resolve. Who wants to face an impending financial reckoning or a souring marriage? Who wants to say their candidate blew it or admit that some problems cannot be straightened out just by cleaning house? 
And number three, sometimes we artificially flavor as a means to invention. Articulating a vision using the heartening beats of narrative is an essential step in the process of creating something new. We tell our investors, job candidates, and early adopters the story of how our essential thingamabob emerged organically from a latent need only we could sense. But the simplified narratives we're creating and projecting and consuming tempt us into forgetting that family, more than milestone birthdays, is a dicey damn business. And marriage has hardly a thing to do with anniversary dinners. Products often fail. Policies usually come up short one way or another. All the photoshopping, literally and metaphorically, is leaving us feeling ripped off when our heroes have colossal blind spots, when our most important relationships go in circles, when the catharsis followed by a return to normalcy is nowhere to be found. I do know a few people who seem to live in a kind of radical honesty, who rarely negate or reject that which makes them uncomfortable. One is my cousin Kathy, who lost her 19-year-old, the great but not perfect Aaron Zentgraf, in a car accident. She told me for many years, I kept asking, why did this happen? Until I finally figured it out. It happened because it can. Cars can flip. Glass can break. Metal can pierce. Seeing that clearly, embracing that unadulterated reality, set her free. So, here's a few things we can do. Check in daily with complex content. Long-form journalism, literary fiction, HBO, anything. Number two, be on guard for the cognitive moment when people become characters. When a series of events becomes a plot. When endings are tidy. I know I'm tacking on a denouement when I hear myself invoke destiny with lines like, I could have told you from day one, and absolutisms like always, only, and everyone. Catharsis is created, not found, which means all resolutions are of our making. Finally, maybe our best defense against narrative creep and the sometimes crippling dissatisfaction it can generate is to keep at least one confidant in all matters, a real friend with whom we trade all the unadorned truths about our non-conforming, inconsistent, notably deficient in several areas, lives. That's the shared reality we're being asked to accept, and that's the mountain I hope to summit before it's all over. Maybe I'll see you there. Thanks, guys. As ever, I encourage you to share this with anybody who needs it. That's why we do it, to be useful. All right. I'll see you on Tuesday with another episode of Kelly Corgan Wonders. Bye.